0: Well, it, uh, it seems like, and I don't know what your perception is like, but the church today is going through a bit of a reckoning. A lot of questions being asked of, is this good and is it true and is it, uh, is it the hope of the world? Uh, a lot of sort of ugliness being uncovered in some, some pockets of Christianity and it's been really challenging. I wonder how you found that. I mean, why would we follow Jesus? Uh, and what, what might be putting people off Jesus? What's putting them off? Maybe take 30 seconds, just ask the person in front of you next to you, what do you think is the kind of off-putting kind of thing about Jesus that's kind of preventing people? Maybe you're a Christian, maybe you're not a Christian, just like generally, what do you think kind of puts people off? Uh, 30 seconds, go. You see, what I think the problem... Today is that the church is trying to answer our culture's story with a list of imperatives and, and commands and rules. At least that's what I think the world is hearing. Now, let me unpack that. I think every culture has a meta narrative, like an overarching story by which we see the world, by which we define identity, the way that we define value, the way that we define purpose. And we see this meta narrative, this story in the songs that we hear, in the books that we read, in the TV, in the movies that we watch. This story and this meta narrative, this, grand, this like grand overarching story of how we define identity, how do we, how do we define purpose? Uh, we sort of have that. And I think what we see in the church is a bit of a reality check. We're not in Kansas anymore. Uh, The story has changed. Our culture's story has changed, and yet the church is still trying to speak to an old story, uh, which doesn't fit. Christian ethic doesn't fit within the current story. And so the church is never going to be able to speak in a compelling way to the world if all we ever do is to seek to answer our culture story with a list of do's and don'ts, instead of, actually, a better story. A better story. And so the question for the church, those who are believers, also a question if you're here today doubting, or a question if you're a skeptic, is there a better story? Because I think not only do we need to ask the question, is the story of the church, is the Bible true, but also is it good? And I think for many ways we're just sort of fighting to say it's true, but also we've lost a little bit of This story is good. It's a better story. Uh, So what I want to do with you guys today is just uh, take a little bit of a a look under the bonnet uh, of our culture's narrative, what that is. And when I say our culture, I'm thinking mostly kind of Western, many of us kind of living this in Adelaide. And then kind of broadly, we sort of adopt a lot of what's happening in in the States and, and the West. So look at our culture's narrative. Then I'm going to look a little bit at the fragility of that narrative. Why it actually isn't, I think, the best story. And then lastly, we'll finish it, finding ourselves in God's story and why that's a better story. Uh, So if you're a Christian with us today, I hope that you will come out of this loving Jesus more. Uh, And if you're not a Christian with us, uh, I want to say I hope that at the end of this, you have a a bit more of an open heart to see uh, that Jesus is truly who he says he is and the hope of the world. Uh, So that's a bit of where I'm going. As uh, so I said before, every culture has a story they live by. Uh, and these stories are trying to answer the question of identity. Who am I? Who am I really? How do I define who I am? What's my worth? What's my value? Where do I discover my true self? And like I said, we see these stories weaved into, into the kind of uh, stories of our day. And I think uh, it's best captured by the epic uh, story, movie, uh awesome franchise, uh, Frozen. Uh, Love that my boy loves Frozen. Uh, We sing it in the car often. Uh, And there's a song that Elsa sings that I think really captures the the spirit and the story of our moment. She says, it's time to see what I can do. Who wants to sing it with me? (laughs) To test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. Okay, I'm free. I'll... Put myself out of embarrassment there. I let it go. Let it go. To break through, no right, no wrong, I'm free, let it go. What I think this is capturing, in other words, and a fancy word for it, is something called expressive individualism. Expressive individualism. What that means, and I think this is what our story of today is, is that our identity is formed by feelings and desires that must be discovered unlocked and expressed in order for us to be our true selves. i put it another way. It's the belief that we have this special core of, of feeling and intuition, of, of inner truth that should be uh, unfolded or expressed in order for us to truly find our individuality. And then this individuality is then to be lived out by refusing to surrender to conformity with a model imposed on the outside. Uh, Josh Chatra puts it this way. Each person is to throw off the shackles of expectations imposed by anything on the outside and look within to be true to themselves. A bit like Elsa. Let it go. You know, she was constrained and, and often we see that. Institutions, they put these constraints on identity. We need to let nothing tell us who we are. Look inside and express that. That's how we find identity. Identity is formed by looking within and being true to your desires, not by what anyone else says, not even your own body. You be true to your desires and what's inside. And so within this framework of defining identity, it's inevitable that the world is going to have a different set of ethics. In other words, a different set of defining what is right and wrong it's going to have a different set of priorities and a different definition of flourishing. And so if Christians come along and church come along and say, this is right, this is wrong, they would be like, no, it doesn't fit. It doesn't work. You see how we actually, the story at its root has a different uh, kind of, a, it, it plays out differently. And so we, we see things like this, uh, be true to yourself. That's our cultural, cultural mandate. You do you. You do you. So to kind of unpack this uh, story, this meta-narrative, I want to take a case study of uh, kind of applying it to one sort of area, and that's a, a sexual ethic, and I'm not going to go into too much detail, but I want us to help us see the way that we then form, uh, how, how this kind of story manifests into the way we see the world. Uh, so if we were to ask the question, what is sex for under this narrative, uh, sex is for individual fulfillment and self-realization. You see, within consensual relationship, anything is permissible. And so sex has nothing to do with marriage or religion. It's to do with individual fulfillment. And, you know, a Christian sexual ethic is one of the greatest off-putters, I think, of people believing in Jesus. And so it's important that we understand unpack this. It's why we see today... If we think about sex as for individual forful- fulfilment, then we see a celebration of things like pornography. It's all about self-discovery and kind of uh, fast relationships. To speak of relationships, another case example, uh, this story, how it manifests, manifests. Within this narrative, expressive individualism creates a consumer mindset. Uh, consumer mindset. Uh, to explain this, I want to kind of give a bit of an illustration, hopefully to help you understand what I'm saying. Uh, Let me tell you about my Apple dealer. Um, So I have an Apple dealer, they provide me product, Uh, I sign a contract uh, and with that contract there's a stipulation that uh, I will receive my Apple product and I'll give them the money. It's kind of an exchange. Uh, But the thing about this contract is that it's provisional. Um, So I'm thinking about an Apple here, not an iPhone, Uh, I'm an Android guy. (laughs) Uh, So I receive my Apple, uh, but the thing about this is that it's provisional and easily terminated. Uh, What that means is that if my Apple no longer meets my needs on a consumer relationship, well, I'll break that contract. You haven't fulfilled your side, so I don't have to fulfill mine anymore. In other words, the individual's needs are more important than the relationship. I don't really care about my Apple dealer that much. Uh, But on a deeper level, if you think about relationships today, the individual's needs are more important than the relationships. And so when the needs are not met, we're going to end that relationship. I mean, that's the whole premise of Tinder, is that we'd have these fast relationships that meet our needs, but when they don't meet our needs anymore, we'd end the relationship because individual need is greater. See, it's important that we define identity because it shapes how we see the world. And so I want to ask you today is, have you seen identity defined this way? Are you seeing that around you? Uh, Do you recognize the story in the world that you guys live, in the media that you watch? How is it defining who we are? How is it defining and what's under kind of undergirding the way that we have an ethic of of what's right and wrong? And I think we felt the strain of this a lot during COVID uh, because what is more important, individual or community? individual needs versus the community's needs and what sacrifices can we make at, at an individual cost for the sake of communities we, i think we've we've felt this tension and i also think we feel this within the church like have we adapted something similar this expressive individualism that makes us focus then on emotions and feelings of, of self-esteem of of uh, appeasing the individual and the consumer that comes to church and uh Like we sort of have these big mega churches that's all about uh, entertainment for the sake of people feeling good. Have we adopted something like that? It's a challenge for us. So that's, I think, a bit of the culture narrative that we're swimming in, that we need to have uh, actually be uh, literate and understand that that's what's going on. Uh, But the thing is that although our society has mostly accepted this narrative, I think Uh, It's not without problems and contradictions. Uh, This narrative uh, is deeply fragile. So I want to spend a few minutes just thinking about, Okay, how does this narrative actually not match up and is not the best story for the world? It's not the best story for the world. Firstly, feelings change. Uh, Expressive individualism is problematic because when something is based on nothing but inward feelings it's inevitably always going to be changing. Our feelings change. And I think it's no wonder that so many people are confused and anxious because if we're grounding our identity in our feelings, when our feelings change, suddenly we feel that insecurity. Feelings change. I think the other problem with expressive individualism is that I've got their consumerism consumes. Uh, when we have this story that's self-centered and consumerism, consumerist, uh, it ends up trampling over those that we sort of claim to be setting free. I mean, think about, again, bringing back this idea of uh, if sex is about self-fulfillment and we have this consumer mindset, what we see is millions of women are abused and trafficked and hurt within industries like the porn industry and the human trafficking. Uh, And we've seen the damage of cheap one-night-stand relationships and and the breakdown and, 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 the, and abusive relationships. like uh, it's, This story may be good for some, but it's not so good for others who are at the other end of it. If you understand what I'm saying. Uh, next, I think this is really relevant for us. Expectations are crushing. You see, expressive individualism. and I hope you're staying with me. This idea of, remember our feelings, our identity is from within. And we express that. And it's an individualist kind of feeling. That's where we get our identity. It's reliant on performance, which can be a crushing burden for those who fail to understand and fail to express their desires. It's a crushing burden if you struggle to express and find yourself. And society will kind of judge us if we don't. You see, if you're not sexually fulfilled or active... Are you failing to be true to yourself and left with this unfulfilled identity? If it's all about, it's all about expressing our desires, if those desires are not met, are we failing? It's reliant on performance and those expect- expectations are crushing. And lastly, I've got there consistently inconsistent. Expressive individualism is unreliable, insisting that we are as Elsa says, free from rights and wrongs and rules. We're free from those. But at the same time, we see this cultural narrative demanding moral absolutes. It does tell us what is right and wrong. And it refuses to say to anyone who would say otherwise. So that's an inconsistent message. Uh, this guy, Josh Chattraw, uh, he wrote this book called Telling a Better Story, which some of his ideas I've used for today. He says this, the pursuit of individual freedom has meant losing true love. Consumerism has led to despair. And our pop psychology has removed neither guilt, neither our guilt nor our anger. And with the loss of a traditional understanding of sin, we've also lost the resources needed to tr- truly forgive and find peace with one another. The cultural narratives that promised heaven on earth have instead led us to a very different place. See, I don't think our story is working. We look around us and we're not seeing this heaven on earth. And I wonder if you've noticed those problems and fragility within our culture and within our own mindset. Uh, Have you come across that kind of consumer attitude? Have you been on the receiving end of that and have been burnt by someone? Are you struggling with that performance-based identity, struggling to find who you are? And discover who you are and express who you are. And when you're not doing that, you find yourself unsatisfied, unfulfilled. That can be crushing. Do you have those insecurities and, and restlessness? Who am I? And I can't work out my desires. I can't work out and express my feelings. That's hard. And that can really hurt us. And so my point of all this is, I think that, and this is kind of where I started, instead of the church shaking its fist at the world's ethics and behaviours, what we need to do is actually address this root identity crisis, a problem of story. You see, I believe we need to offer a more compelling story to build our life on. And that's what I believe the news of Jesus is. It's a better story. I believe it's true, but I also believe it is good. I mean that's what the gospel means good news and I think as Christians we forget that we're just so caught up with that's right that's wrong that's that's sin but forgetting at the at the at, the, at its root addressing who we are what is our identity and I think we need to talk about ethics and, and and right and wrong but before we get there we need to actually look at are we on the same ground here are we are we talking in the same way Uh, And so that's why I think we need to find ourselves in a better story. And so what I want to do for the next about 10 minutes is uh, look at what is the story of God and why that's a better story for us, why it's a better story. Uh, There's two pillars that I want to build this on. Uh, This is uh, what we find in the gospel, the good news of Jesus, Uh, a better story that defines our identity. So who are we? Who are we? This is what the Bible tells us from the very beginning. It says that we are made by God, that there is a God of the universe who, who in his creativity and, and awesomeness, he made this world. And at the pinnacle of his creation, he made people. I don't know a lot of you guys know this, made in his image. Essentially, that's saying that we're, we're reflectors of God. Of his awesomeness, we sort of get to reflect that. You see, from the beginning of the story, it's about. God, that the center of this story is God, and we get to reflect His story. And that every human person has the footprint or the fingerprint of the divine. That we have dignity in that. You see, the basis of our human rights is actually a gift from the church. Did you know that? There wasn't a thing of human rights. This idea of every human being has inherent dignity. That was, that was a movement started by Christians. So if who we are in God, if we have this sanctity to every human life, let's again just think back about sexuality through this lens. Our sexual integrity comes from God. It's something that is sacred. Uh, in Matthew 5.18, Jesus has this radical vision of, of uh of sexual integrity, where he says that uh, he says the law says that you know you shouldn't commit adultery, but I say that even lusting in someone's heart is committing adultery. In other way, in other words, someone's sexual integrity is so precious and valuable that it's not for someone, even in the privacy of their mind, to take and to abuse. Well, we get this in Psalm 51. Uh, David, King David, uh, he committed this awful atrocity. I mean, the power imbalance. He was the king. He saw this woman. He said, I want to be with her. He takes her. I mean, this is totally just uh, like the power imbalance there, abused. She had no choice in this relationship. He then uh, sleeps with her, then arranges for her husband to be killed. Uh, and when he's confronted by a, a prophet of God, this kind of mouthpiece of God, Uh, David, to his credit, humbles himself and he realises the wrong that he does. And he writes down this prayer and it's recorded in the Bible. And he says, he asked God for mercy, but he says, against you have I sinned. And you think, well, no, no, he sinned against her and, and Uriah, the husband, but he prays against you, God, have I sinned. You see, what he understood there, and I think communicates is that Her sexual integrity is something God had given her and so when he violated that, he violated sacred space. I've got there that quote there from uh, Sam Albury from a great book called uh, Why Does God Care Who I Sleep With? But it says this, any sexual assault is a violation of sacred space. And I think we understand this at a cultural level. Uh, The Me Too movement uh, helped us understand that there's a difference between physical abuse and sexual abuse, because there's something profoundly, uh, pro- profoundly significant to who we are in our sexual integrity. And I think this story makes perfect sense within the Christian story, but I think our culture struggles to understand and fit this idea of we are inherently uh, sacred as beings, and to violate that is terrible. And I also think it's why abuses by the church are especially evil. Especially evil. That's pretty heavy, uh, but I think it's worth understanding and, and fitting our understanding of the world and fitting our understanding of sexuality within God's story. Can you see how I'm trying to match that up? Because we're made in God's image. That's the way we see it. So that's the first pillar of our biblical meta narrative, this story. That's where it starts. We're made in God's image. But the second pillar of this biblical narrative is the great story of God. The Bible is not just a list of rules, but it is a story. It's a history. It's a history of how God loved the world. We sung it at the start there, that he would give his son. See, God's mission from the get-go, after humanity he made beautiful and he loved them, they chose to turn their back on him, to leave this relationship to make themselves God, to make themselves the center of the universe. And what we see is the story, the biblical story is that God was on a mission to reconcile humanity back to himself, back to relationship. We were separated from him. We didn't deserve his love or his mercy. And there would be justice for what humanity has done to his world, to one another, and ultimately towards God. But God... In his great love and mercy, he would come himself to earth as his son, Jesus. And Jesus would die on the cross. He would take the anger of God upon himself. This separation between us and God, he would remove that barrier so that we could come and have relationship with God again. You see, if we're framing, again, who we are, who am I? Who am I in this story We're so deeply loved by God that God has paid the highest, highest price for us to be back in relationship with him. And so the story goes is that we follow and trust Jesus with our life. He says, all your sins gone, they're forgiven. They've been paid for. And now I've invited you back into relationship. The Bible talks of union, this idea of just so enveloped in God that we're just home. We're secure. We're accepted. So who am I in this story? I'm accepted by God. I'm loved by Him. The Bible now calls us His children. We're loved. We're secure in that. That's the story of God. And so how does that shape who we are then? Well, two things I want to point to. One is covenantal acceptance. That word covenant is a fancy word for promise. That God has promised to us and that because of Jesus, we're accepted forever. Nothing can take that away. Nothing can remove that. That is totally, totally secure. Think about expressive individualism, very shaky ground. I think this is absolutely secure for us in our identity. That I'm wrapped up in his love, wrapped up in his acceptance. And in that is an invitation to the feast. And I've got here because I was thinking about tonight, you guys are having a feast And a meal. The Bible paints a story that finishes with a meal. Finishes with this beautiful acceptance and love and party. It's good news. It's great. It's what our hearts long for. It's the nature of who God is. So defining our identity is covenantal acceptance. And secondly there, a sacrificial love. You see, Jesus would die for us. This amazing love. He would sacrifice himself. He didn't consider equality with God something to be uh, taken uh, for granted, but he would give it all up, making himself nothing. So he would pay the full price for us to be accepted with God. He denied himself. And so that's within that story, we frame ourselves, we follow in this pattern of self-denial, that as we follow Jesus, we too die to ourselves. And this then shapes everything in our story. It shapes the way we see justice. It's not about our individualistic needs, but it's about like Jesus died to himself, we too die to ourselves and so we go out and we fight for justice. We fight for what's good. We're not thinking about ourselves. We're willing to sacrifice our comforts. We're willing to sacrifice our money. Even framing a sexual ethic within this framework of Jesus gave himself for us so too, Sex is not about individual fulfillment, but about self giving. Self giving. And he lifts us up. He lifts us up. And so, what we see that again, a bit of a case example, sex then reflects the image of God in that it is about mutual self giving. The Bible paints this story. Uh, the very last chapters of the Bible in Revelation is a wedding of. What the wedding is pointing to is actually this relationship between God and the people that he would, who, would, who would come to him. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5 as well, Paul speaks of this kind of mutual dying to self-love. And he said, uh, this is actually reflecting, uh, although he's talking about a marriage, he's like, this is actually really about Christ and his church. Uh, just briefly, I'll just explain a few things. So uh, understanding sex within this story... It's about covenantal acceptance. It's about, I'm promised to someone and I accept them no matter what. I'm promised forever. I'll never leave them. It's about sacrificial love. It's about the other person, not about us. So we frame that in that story. And you see, what this story did, I think, is actually, it changed the world. Uh, The first sexual revolution uh, wasn't the 60s. It was actually... The first century A.D. You see, in Roman context, our sexual morality, this idea of a sexual ethic was defined by power. And yet what Christians did was they insisted that the rightness or wrongness of sexual acts be determined not by social status and power, but by covenantal love. See, what Christianity did was it guarded the vulnerable from exploitation real quick quote, Uh, there was an immediate concrete result that all could see by breaking the connection of sex with the social order, Christianity guarded the vulnerable from exploitation. No man could demand sex of a woman without giving up his independence and committing his whole life to her. No man could demand sex from his servants. The vulnerable, women, slaves and children were protected by the insistence that sex occur only within the safety of of the covenantal union of marriage, reflecting Jesus' love for the church. See, sex was reimagined as no longer a mere appetite that we could barely control. We're not just mammals with bonus bits, but rather as a joyous, even sacred expression that reflects the way God is saving the world. See, it's a better story because it redefines who we are, it redefines our identity, And this can be your story. We are made by God. We are precious to him, redeemed by him. And so I want to finish with a a scripture from Titus chapter 3. And uh, Paul is writing to his kind of protege, Titus, uh, and uh, this beautiful picture of what we once were and this story that we kind of lived by, but what Jesus then frees us into. Uh, So I I want to read this to you. He says, At one time we too were foolish, Disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and and pleasures. This idea of deceived, we're just sort of confused. We don't know where we're going. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Isn't that a great reflection of our story that we're seeing in our world today? This picture of hate and division. Verse 4, but, the greatest word in the Bible, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, in other words, all our sins are forgiven and our standing with God, He says, you're justified You're forgiven, you're free. He says, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have been trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. It's a good story, and it's worth living by. See, we're not going to be able to speak to our world about You know, things like sex in a compelling way, if all we're ever doing is saying that's right, that's wrong. Instead, we need to put the Christian ethic into a counter-narrative. We need to tell a better story based on the Bible's great story of redemption. Uh, I've got one more minute, and I want to read this quote because I read this in an article the other day, and I thought, how telling. Uh, I really just want to address, particularly those who maybe have been burnt by... um, There was the kind of story of the early 2000s, this kind of purity movement. And it had good intentions. uh, But what it mostly did was just kind of add rules and do's and don'ts rather than actually grounding it in who we are and telling a better story. And I read this, and I found it really interesting. I wonder how things would have been different for so many of us if instead of church youth group turning into yet another dating versus courtship debate, we had deep studied the attributes of God together or if instead of putting on a modesty fashion show, we had poured over the Gospels and the life of Jesus, to isolate and overemphasize certain ideas from the Bible risks misinterpretation, but it also risks creating our own version of Christianity, righteousness, and even salvation. In other words, our virginity was the picture of salvation, not Jesus and his death on the cross. And again, that's within the Christian story. And and sex should be valued and protected by marriage. But if it's all about do's and don'ts, we're going to miss it. We need to look at Jesus and his story and how he defines who we are. That changes the way we see things. This is from Welcher, this article, this last little bit. The church does not need a new and better set of rules on sexuality. We need spiritual formation. When we break down the tough and gray areas of Scripture... And we make those into extra biblical rules. In other words, where we kind of take things, like dating, there's no kind of rule in the Bible on that. But if suddenly we say, this is right and this is wrong, and in a gray area, rather than devoting ourselves to try and understand God's heart, we sort of add on rules. And I've got, she says here, Whether conservative or progressive, we remove the opportunity of Christians to discuss, think deeply, wrestle with God's word, and be conformed into the image of Christ. And this is where I'll finish, guys. Uh, Where are we defining our identity? Who we are? What story are you living? What are you defining your worth in? And can you be satisfied in Jesus? And do you see your life within this counter-narrative, this counter-story? I love Mike's prayer then, that we would actually stop and listen to people, listen to their story rather than just trying to say, that's right, that's wrong. But we would actually see, okay, what's at the root? How are we defining who we are? How are we defining identity? And hey, can I tell you that the way I see who I am and why that's actually really good, and that's for you too? Before we talk about all these ethics, let's go to the heart of the story. And that last challenging thing there, are you honouring or violating sacred space? But in this, I want to finish where there's grace. There is always grace. The whole point of the Christian story is that we stuff it up and we don't deserve it, but God in his love and his mercy, he forgives us of our sins and he invites us not just into religion and beliefs but into a relationship, who we are following after Jesus. He's alive. He rose from the dead. He's the king of heaven and he's here in this space and we can know him. And I believe he has a deeper, deeper satisfaction on offer. So I don't just believe the Christian story is true. I believe it's good. Do you believe it's good? I believe it's so good and we need to live that story. If you're a Christian here today, live the story it's good. And if you're not a Christian, I hope that you can see and with an open heart that at the heart of our story is this wonderful framework that God has made us. We're not an accident. And even in our brokenness and in our... In our guilt, he loves us, and he sent his son to die for us. Uh, Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for this wonderful story that you have woven and that we get to be a part of. I pray for hearts tonight, Lord, who perhaps are confused uh, and, and searching and questioning and doubting. And Lord, I just pray for an outpouring of your spirit that you would give great clarity. Lord and King Jesus, that you are the way, the truth, and the life, that you have made us and that we are sacred and precious in your eyes, and that you would pay the highest price to die for us and invite us into relationship. So Lord, we just pray that you would give us a great, uh, that you'd tune our ears to what the world is saying, and that we would be able to recognize that, and that Uh, This idea of expressive individualism has some good things to say, but it's not the ultimate thing, and it's not the perfect story. Lord Jesus, your way and your truth and your life is the good news. So we want to meet that, Lord. We want to know you. So, Lord, help us. I thank you that we can be together, and I know there's probably lots more questions. So, Lord, just meet us in that space. We bless you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.